we're getting ready for the season and, and the coach was was asking like rhetorically right rhetorically who's gonna hit fourth for us this year and i was so desperate for this man's attention that i raised my hand and i was like why not me and he just looked at me i, I thought he was gonna list the reasons that it wasn't me right i thought he was gonna list like well you're not very fast your arm is below average you don't have a position defensively and, and you don't have much power but instead uh, this coach he just looked at me and said why not you ryan welcome into another episode of baseball americas from phenom the farm i'm your host kyle banduho on today's episode, I'm joined by Ryan LaVarnway, who just wrapped up a career catching parts of 10 seasons in the big league for 13 organizations and eight different big league teams, along with stints as a mainstay for Team Israel in world play. Since leaving the California high school ranks, Ryan is well-traveled, a self-described journeyman. We talk playing at Yale in the Ivy League for college, turning himself into a competent catcher and a prospect in the Red Sox system, and then the highs and lows of a long career in baseball, but one that involved a lot of moves, transactions, and hope of finding a long-term home. It's a really insightful look at his career. Hope everyone enjoys. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews, and if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We've got AFL reports coming in, and it's about to be top prospect season. So tune in, look for those team top 30 prospects. They will be in your inbox soon. It's always a great time to be subscribed to Baseball America. And with that, let's talk to Ryan LaVarnway. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom of the Farm, he was a sixth-round pick in the 2008 draft out of Yale by the Red Sox former big league catcher Ryan LaVarnway. Ryan, thank you so much for joining the show. Kyle, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, before we dive into your career, you're you're essentially wrapping up your first year out of baseball. What what was life kind of on the other foot, talking about the game instead of uh, spending your time traveling and wondering where your where your next jersey was at? Yeah, it was. I mean, I felt like I ended up being one foot in, one foot out because even though I retired from professional baseball, I still played three weeks in the Australian League. I played in the World Baseball Classic. I played a couple of games with an indie ball team to get ready for the European championships that I just got back from. Uh, so I still ended up playing a lot of baseball, just not affiliated with a big league team this year. Was this year still the most time you've spent at your, like your actual residence in since, since I guess you were at Yale? Yeah, no, it was. Um, it was nice to be home. I had a, a daughter during my last season and then I was traded when she was nine days old. And that was kind of the, the straw that broke my back as far as um, knowing if, if it was still worth it in, in my career, you know, I, I was very fortunate to play for a lot of teams. I got a lot of great opportunities that I, you know, I, I earned them. I feel pretty proud of the things that I've done in baseball, but uh, my wife and I moved across the country 56 times paid rent in 33 different cities. And it was just a, uh, you know, I think I pretty much defined a, a journeyman. So once we brought a, uh, another little baby into the world, we decided to to be in one place. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the dynamics of that. But let let's go back to kind of your high school days, your upbringing days. When did you realize you were gonna have a chance to play college baseball to at least make that next level? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. When I was five years old, I decided I was gonna make the big leagues, and that was the end of that conversation. Uh, but there was really no performance to back it up per se. Uh, until my senior year of high school, uh, we had moved into the district for El Camino Real High School because it was the best program around. 
And I played on the freshman team as a freshman. I played on the sophomore team as a sophomore. Um, and then I really didn't crack the everyday starting lineup on the varsity until my senior year. And I had I had really been anchored to this feeling of of being small, of being not good enough, um, of feeling like I, I was an underdog until my senior year of high school. We're getting ready for the season and, and the coach was was asking like rhetorically, right, rhetorically, who's going to hit fourth for us this year? And I was so desperate for this man's attention that I raised my hand. And I was like, why not me? And he just looked at me. I, I thought he was going to list the reasons that it wasn't me. Right. I thought he was going to list like, well, you're not very fast. Your arm is below average. You don't have a position defensively and, and you don't have much power. But instead, uh, this coach, he just looked at me and said, why not you, Ryan? And that that why not you allowed me to detach from this former identity that I had of the of the kid that wasn't good enough of the kid that was too small. And I really I really went off. I really started to reach my potential that he saw that I didn't see in myself. And my senior year of of high school, I went in with no offers and and, and no one knew who I was. And then by the end of this year, I won all conference in one of the best high school leagues in the country and, and got to play at Yale. I mean, I've got to ask the grades question kind of student. You were, you know, what, I guess before the offers came in, were you kind of thinking of yourself of, I am going to, I'm going to go to an Ivy league or I'm going to go. And there's a, you know, there's a bunch of schools in California that are similar, similar academic standards, but what kind of student were you and how much did that help open doors and find a place to play? I think I lucked out in that I was, I was in high school, at least a naturally gifted student. I was always getting straight A's. My my parents always had said, no matter what grades you get, as long as you're doing your best, that's what matters. And my best was straight A's. So I was in all the honors classes. I was in all the AP classes. I don't know that I really considered Ivy League until I got recruited. And I, I went to the Stanford camp. It was one of the only showcases I did. Now, I know it's a different world now where kids are going to 15 showcases a year, every year. I went to two. And one of them was the Stanford camp that required a 3.8 GPA to even go to the camp, I think. So the people that recruit from that camp are all the Ivy League schools because that's the only place they can get the players into your school. Because if you don't know how the Ivy League admission requirements go, you got to get in on your own. There's no scholarships. Uh, They can maybe push you over the top, but you really got to do it mostly on your own academically. So I went to this Stanford camp and I fell in love with Stanford. I was like, I'd love to go here. This is beautiful. This is a great baseball program too. Just a classic ACC program, Stanford. Yeah, Stanford was like, no thanks. You know, you're t- all the things that I knew about myself, all, all my insecurities, right? You're, you're too slow. You don't have a position. Your arms, this and that. Uh, but I did get a call from Yale, Dartmouth, Harvard, Cornell, and UC Davis. So th- that was the the list of schools that recruited me. And I, when I took a trip to Yale, I just fell in love. How many like winter clothes did you own before <laughs> before going to to New Haven, None. Connecticut? None. <laughs> I had like hoodies and jeans was the the thickest I got. So I always like asking about that first fall in college because it's just for any college student that's that's the big adjustment period. But for baseball, there's obviously you're you're going up a level. You're you're playing against you know older guys and stuff like that. 
But in Yale, at Yale, it's a different dynamic, too, of you're now attending Ivy League classes. You are now fighting Mother Nature in a way that you did not have to fight Mother Nature in California. What was the what was the most difficult part about that first fall? Is it the baseball? Is it the classroom? Or is it is it the winter? Um, I'd say it was a classroom. The baseball, I mean, I went from the number three ranked high school team in the country, which was really, I mean, we were really good, to the 270th out of 271 ranked D1 college team. Like my high school team probably could have beat my, my high school team probably could have beat my college team that year. So it wasn't the baseball per se. It was, I had to learn how to be a student. Like a minute ago, I told you I was a naturally gifted student in high school. I had to learn how to learn once I got to college. There's, there's a few classes I felt like I might flunk out early on. Um, but the thing about Yale that makes it so great is they have the best teachers in the world. We're studying the textbooks that those professors wrote. So if you want to learn and you're willing to put in the effort, like they'll, they'll help you learn and get there. Seems like we might have had a different experience, Yale, in, in my small Division two school. Uh, a, couple, a couple differences. But you also, you majored in philosophy, which you are the, you're the first philosophy major I've had on the show. And I'm just, I'm just curious, you, you, know, you go to this school, what, what drove you to, to that major? Because it's not, you know, you could have taken econ or business or, or whatever and just kind of had that generic Ivy League to, to Wall Street pipeline. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I honestly in high school loved math and physics. So I was like, I'll just be a rocket scientist. Like that was, that was my plan. And then I got also I, an I, Ivy league like, pipeline. Yeah. I got to a, I got to a level of like multivariable calculus with linear algebra that was just over my head. And I was like, okay, now no more math. I'm good. Um, but your freshman year, you need to take like a smattering of classes. That's the thing about a liberal arts college is they're like, take some literature, take a, take a language, take a fine art, take a, take a sociology, whatever. And my philosophy class was the one that I enjoyed the most. And a little egotistically, they said, if the degree says Yale on it, it doesn't really matter what discipline it's in. So just study what you enjoy. And I bought into that as a, as an 18 year old, I was like, sure, I'll do the thing that I like. Well, on the field, you came to college as an outfielder. What drove you to behind the dish? I, I took a quote from your athletic farewell article, your retirement article. Quote, I'm just not a great athlete. Scouts look for five tools when judging talent, hitting for average, hitting for power, running, fielding, and throwing. Out of those five tools, I don't check many boxes. I'm one of the slowest professional athletes on the planet. My arm strength is average at best, and my fielding didn't get high marks either. What what took you then to arguably the most strenuous defensive position? Uh, necessity. Uh, I remember I I went to so I had caught in Little League and I had caught on the junior varsity in high school, uh, but we just had a kid that hit puberty thirteen years before me in my grade. Like you you know what what it's like to go into high school. You have late bloomers, people that are young for their grade, which was me, and then you have grown men that are in the same grade as you. Uh, so Sammy Donabedian was going to start at catcher in high school. And when, when I went back to re for them to retire my number a few years ago, my high school coach was like, I still think Sammy should have been the catcher. And I'm like, I agree when we were 18. Um, so I went to college. I played outfield my freshman year. And then I was actually at a Hanukkah party with my eight-year-old all-star coach 
over winter break. And he looks at me and he says, Hey, if you, if you learn to hit, like I think you're going to, and you're a real pro prospect with your bat, you got to stop messing around with this outfield thing. You're way too slow to play outfield in the big leagues. You got to start catching again. So I went back and I told my, my college coach, I said, Hey, I want to catch. And it, and it just happened to coincide with a catcher in my grade being injured and the opportunity was there. And he said, well, let's, let's try out and see if you have any skills back there. And I guess I passed the the test. Well, the hitting thing at Yale does work out. You, you left Yale as the career home run leader. And then as a sophomore, you hit 467. Can you just walk me through the mental aspect of hitting 467? Like what those ABs, does it, did it feel easy? Did it, what, and especially as you, you know, you, you played, you know, 15 years of baseball after this to varying levels of success. What, what was the comfort level of that in the box? And is that anything that you can pull from when you're like slumping in pro ball or something like that? Cause it had to be just like mental Nirvana. It was hitting was fun that year. I'll tell you what. Uh, so I told you about the conversation I had with my high school coach that really ch- changed my trajectory when he said, why not you? I had a very similar conversation with my college assistant volunteer hitting coach at the end of my freshman year. I had a you know a very average freshman year hit like 300, nothing special. Uh, and I saw our first baseman win all Ivy league. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. I didn't know they did that. Like I want to win all Ivy league. And I set this goal for myself. I thought it was a reach goal. I was like, Oh, I want to, I want to be the best in the league at my position. And I told this to, to our hitting coach, his name's Glenn Lungarini. And he said, why not more? Like, why would you stop at all Ivy League when you should win All-American? And the way he said it was like, you should. Like, I, I see this for you. And I hadn't even considered that, right? Like, you and I, like, All-American is something we've heard of before. But, like, did you ever relate to that? Like, Absolutely. I was like, I didn't think I, I was, I didn't think I was up for the, in the category, right? But he, he put this on me and the way he said it was like, you should. Um, so I, I started raising my expectation, my, my level of, of work ethic. And I started, you know, practicing in the, in the batting cage with that idea in my mind, like how would an all American take this batting practice? And I started studying video and I started going to the weight room early and staying late to the point where my coach had to start kicking me out of the weight room. And I started, I started thinking like, what over the top things can I do if I want to be something I've never been, I have to do something that I've never done. I heard my weight go, uh, my uh, strength coach in college talking about Dragon Ball Z, how they trained with weighted clothing. And I found, I literally, I literally did this. I found a form fitting weight vest that I could wear under my clothes. And for two months in the fall semester, I wore a 20 pound weight vest from the time I woke up in the morning to the time I went to sleep at night, whether I was in, in class at the dining hall or in the club dancing. Like I had 20 pounds on me. So I was training all the time. And since I did this ridiculous amount of like over the top work, when it came to game time, playing well felt like a foregone conclusion. Like I put in more work than anybody. I should do better than everybody. And I started the season with a 25 game hit streak. And the the Yale Daily News wrote some an article. I forget exactly what it says. Something to the effect of, at every Yale baseball game, two things happen. They play the national anthem, and Ryan LaVarnway gets a hit. 
and it was it was pretty cool. And at a certain point, about a third of the way through the season, uh, one of my teammates and, and the guy I roomed with on the road, he goes, hey, man, you're on pace to break like every record in the record book. And you're also on pace to lead the country in hitting. So then I was like, again, I set this goal for myself. Like, oh, that's cool. Let's start paying attention to what are the records? What do I need to do? And I had it in my sights from about a third of the way on and just kept going. You turn in that great year and then you head into your junior year and you've you've had all this success, but Yale is not a big league factory. The Ivy League is almost always just a one bid NCAA tournament league. How did you kind of factor the draft in your mind? Like what are the what are those thoughts as you're you're clearly someone who can set high goals and works to achieve them when you're a junior at a at a smaller at least smaller division 1 school how did you kind of factor that in your mind and how did you set that goal and ha- have an idea about yourself you're fairly honest about yourself how did you know how did you think you you factored into team's draft plans uh well first after after my sophomore year i had a total breakdown i was like how the hell am i supposed to do that again like nobody's ever done what i just did how am i supposed to repeat it and i like I totally had a, an, a like a, a really hard mental time with that. Um, my my mom's best friend is luckily a sports psychologist, um, and really helped me through that. She's she's worked with Olympians before, and people. She helped me understand fear of failure, but also fear of success. So I I really worked on my mental game, and decided that if I was good enough, it didn't matter where I was, they would find me. Um, because there had never been a hitter from Yale make it to the big leagues before. I would be have to be the first one again. Realistically, Yale had produced more U.S. presidents than Major League Baseball players at that point. And that's a crazy stat to think about. Um, so I, I really had to, to buy into the fact that I was going to be the first. And um, I just had to be good enough uh, for them to find me. And I... Again, I went out there. I was, I wasn't hitting for quite the average. I was in like the four ten to four twenty range, but I was hitting for even more power my sophomore year. Um, until you know, we got we I got hurt against Harvard trying to dive over the catcher's head because since I'm so slow, I was thrown out at home plate by about forty feet. So with that, the the Red Sox take you in the sixth round after your junior year. You choose to forego that that senior of eligibility per most of your BA scouting reports catching you had very little chance of sticking behind the plate like that would that you know unlikely and with that would have come a lot more pressure on your bat you caught your entire career caught into into this year into your 30s what work went in like what i assume each individual area took something but like how did you i yet again another question of how did you take this certain skill set and then what individual bits of work were you doing on to find a way to not only stick, but to be, you know, there's value in being a journeyman to a, where a big league team can say he can catch our pitchers for six games in the, in the, in the big leagues. Like what, what were the individual yeah. bits of work that went into that? Well, I, it went into, uh, I had to get really, really, really good at not quitting um, and taking feedback and, and getting better because I look back at my draft video of my defense and it's like, ugh, how did I even get drafted? Like I got drafted because I could bang, not because I could catch. 
Um, I look I, again, I, I've mentioned a couple turning points of conversations with coaches that I've had so far in high school and college. And those were coaches that inspired me to be better than I thought I could. Um, I think of a turning point in pro ball of a coach that had more of a, a difficult conversation with me. I got drafted one round ahead of Tim Fedorovich uh, by the Red Sox. And he was the the catcher that could catch as well as anybody. And who knew if he was going to hit? And then he learned how to hit. So he, he had a great big league career in his own right. He's on the major league coaching staff of the Tigers right now. Um, but we came up as teammates and friendly competitors at every level, low A, uh, short season, high A, double A. If he played, that means that I was DHing. And if I was catching, that he was DHing. And at one point during my first full season, he was catching five days a week. And I was catching, you know, one or two and, and DHing the rest. And I, I went to my coach almost crying because I, I could see my career stalling out. And I felt like I was there to keep Tim Fedorovich healthy. Uh, and I went to him, I said, what do I need to do? Cause, cause I want to have, I want to have success in my own right. And he, and he was very honest and I'm, I'm grateful for it. He said, you're not good enough. If, if I put you back there to catch our pitchers, you'll get exposed and you'll, you will lose games for us. Um, but he took it a step further and he said, if you want to get better, you and I can work one-on-one -on -one every single day until you're good enough. And that's what we did the rest of the year. I got to the field before anybody else. We went out on the warning track by the wall and he would take a fungo and hit balls at me to either catch block, dive, jump, throw, whatever. And it was really the athleticism um, in my squat where my hips, my ankles had some flexibility limitations that I had to figure out a way to get over so that my hands could receive the ball so that I could block the ball so that I could do footwork to second base. And it was really the basic skills that my flexibility limitations were holding me back from until I found a squat that worked for me and my body. And it sounds so simple. Like as a catcher, I had to learn how to squat. Um, but I, I have real uh, impingements in my, in my joints that, that continued the rest of my career that I had to overcome uh, to even, with the, my last year, my last spring training, uh, our strength coach was, was doing the functional movement screen that, that every team does every spring training and he's moving my hips. And he finally said it in a way that I felt so seen and understood. He said, Oh my God, it's a miracle that you are a professional athlete at all. <laughs> Not to mention the catcher with these hips, it must be almost impossible for you to get in a squat. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> It's been hard. <laughs> there's there's also so much more to catching than just the physical. It is the the thinking man's position. As you're, you know, you go from Yale upperclassman, you're you're all American, all these things, to now you're you're a backstop in Pro Bowl, and a lot of these pitchers' careers depend on you and your competency in calling a game and I, and just your chemistry with them and knowing what they want to throw and stuff like that. How long into a professional career did you feel like I can get behind the dish, I can look at a scouting report, whatever, and have a great idea of how to competently call a game? Oh, man, that's such a good question because in the minor leagues, at every level, it changes. There's, I feel like there are unwritten rules or um, patterns that go with each league right? You're in, when you're in a ball, 
everybody can throw a 95 and nobody has any idea where it's going. So you're trying to establish fastball command and figure out where, where it's going. So you're using a lot more fastballs. You use a secondary sparingly. You get to double A. Now you have a little bit of a mix of high round picks that were pushed there just because they have a high signing bonus and then low round picks that earned their way there and starting to have an idea of how to play the game. Uh, and then you get to triple A at least, what, 13 years ago when I got there. And now you had some mid 30 year olds, a bunch of guys that have been around, been in the big leagues for years trying to find their way back. And they're not going to let you beat them on their worst pitch. So you get to triple A and it's like, all right, slider, 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 maybe a fastball to show me, uh, depending on the guy. And I was lucky enough when I first got to triple A, I was 23 years old. And we had five pitchers on the pitching staff that were 35 and older. Like this would never happen in today's modern, younger game. Uh, but I was so lucky because led by Kevin Millwood, who's a name everybody oh, yeah. should know. Oh, yeah. Huge, you know, 10-year veteran. He taught me how to call a game. He would call it from the mound to me. And and then after the game, I somehow got in the in the card game where we were talking all the time. And I felt like a, a baby deer being led through the woods by Mama Deer, Kevin Millwood. Uh, and the, those older guys did so much for my knowledge of how to call a game uh, that I, I'm super grateful for them. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I'm curious to you guys get, especially now, especially, I guess, towards the back end of your career, so much data and so many scouting reports and so much, especially once you get in the high minors and obviously in the big leagues, there's so much of an idea of, okay, this is what we need to do against this guy. This is what our pitcher does well and things like that. How much game plan changes throughout a game? Like if you if you see something with a guy in the first, the first run around the order, the second run around the order, does it change like our game plans pretty fluid or are they pretty like, Hey, this is what, this is what we've got to do to win. We got to, we got to stick to this plan. If you stick to the plan, then you might as well not even play the game, right? You, you come up with a plan before and then your job as a catcher and a pitcher is to use your eyes and say, well, is that plan working? What, what do you have today? Cause a, a pitcher might be a slider guy, but his slider might stink today. And then you got to come up with plan B or plan C or the hitter uh, that hits fastballs might be in a slump. And all of a sudden uh, he can't hit the fastball. And the quicker you recognize that you quick, quicker you realize that everybody on the field is a human being that is at their best or not at their best and feeling confident or not feeling confident or feeling their way through or, or hot right now. Um, I started to get to a point where I could, I could sense if a guy was going to swing at the first pitch or not, by the way, he stepped into the box. And in a 3-0 count, like, is this guy swinging right now? Like, do we need to dot the corner or can we just groove one down the middle to get back into the count? Like, those are the things, as a catcher, you need to start recognizing, oh, he moved up in the box, he's expecting a breaking ball, or he moved back, or he's away from the plate different than last time. 
Um, his posture's changed. He's not feeling comfortable. Um, the movement on your pitch isn't what it was last time. You're pulling your shoulder. You need to keep it in. It, it's very fluid. Uh, it needs to change, and that's why you play the game. That that makes a lot. Of, that is exactly the kind of answer I was hoping for with that. Um, with you, you you've kind of indicated throughout. You know, at, at this point to your career, say you know you you get to double A or whatever that. Um, positive reinforcement or at least kind of a vision of who you can be is, is motivating or does you good after your your 2010 season you you know you hit in double a you play well you you go to the afl which is you know hey it's like it's like prospect season there you are now you've gone from a, a sixth round college pick which is a a quality investment but not an instant hey this guy's definitely going to make it to the big leagues to you're now a prospect you're now in the plans at least per all the scouting reports, all the Baseball America, all the whatever. Did that change at all how you felt about yourself or how you went about your business, especially like the a the AFL? Did that change your vision for yourself? For me, it, it didn't. And I think that was, you know, this was 2010. This is still a long time ago. Twitter was just starting. Instagram, I don't think existed yet. Prospects were starting to be valued but not like they are today. Um, it was a different world. So when I got called up to the Red Sox that next year, I think we had 10 or 15 even players with 10 year service time, which again, would never happen today. So I, I may or may not have felt like a prospect. I know I didn't feel like I was pounding down the door. I, I didn't feel like I was this big, uh, valuable asset that they had at all because where was I going to go? Who was I going to displace Jason Baratek or David Ortiz? Realistically, neither. And I knew that. Um, so for me, it was business as usual. I, I had one minor league offensive player of the year, two years in a row at that point, And I wanted to win it a third time. Well, walk me through that first call up then. Cause the next year you, you get the big call, the first of many big calls. Yeah. The first of many. Uh, so I was in Pawtucket. We had a night game and the Red Sox had a day game at Fenway. So after BP, I was scheduled to catch that day. After BP, we're watching the Red Sox game in the clubhouse. And David Ortiz gets pulled because his Achilles was sprained or something. And in my head, I was like, oh, interesting. I didn't think I'd get called up as a DH, but that would be cool. And as I have that thought, I get a tap on my shoulder. Hey, Skip wants to see you. And... I go to his office and he says, you're going to fly to Kansas City. We're taking you out of the lineup tonight as a precaution. You're going to fly to Kansas City tomorrow. Euclid is banged up and Ortiz is banged up. They're both going to see the doctor in the morning. If either one of them can't go, you're in the starting lineup. But if they're both fine, you'll get back on a plane and come back here. So don't tell anyone. It's not for sure. So you're not even on the 40 man and, at that point. Or you're not You're not on the big league no, roster I'm not at that on the I'm not on the 40 man. I have 30 homers already uh, between double A AA and triple A. I'm hitting like 297. I was triple A player of the month. Like I'm, I'm doing everything that I need to do to take care of my business. But again, it's David Ortiz and Jason Veritek. So to me, I was like, doesn't matter. Keep going. Um, and I, I, I stayed, went out of my way. I didn't read the paper. Uh, again, Twitter wasn't a big thing. So I'm not reading anything. I'm just trying to focus on what I'm doing. Um, but I, I get on the plane. 
I watch the movie for love of the game on the plane and cry like a baby because my dream's about to come true, <laughs> I, I hope. Uh, and when I land, they said, hey, Yuke's going on the DL. You're DHing. Get to the stadium as fast as you can. So the first, I love hearing about like the first few ABs. Are you able to treat them like business as usual? Or is it, I, I can't feel my body. I just hope I can hit the ball. This is the benefit of having all my helmets right behind me, right? I don't know if you're going to use this video or not. Uh, but I still remember, this is the helmet I made my debut in. And there's no ear flap on this side. This is the, the one detriment to minor leaguers and big leaguers using different helmets is I'm used to this big bobblehead, like blocks out all the sound. I put this helmet on. I remember my first at bat, I'm sitting up there thinking like, wow, I can hear everything. And I could see, oh, strike one. Uh-oh. And then I'm like, okay, well, I got to swing at the next pitch. But I could still see strike two. It goes by me. I'm like, okay, no matter what, I got to swing at the next pitch. I'm not striking out without swinging in my first at bat. And the next pitch was like over my head. So I swung at it. I think I fouled up. I didn't get a hit in my first day, but with the helmets, it's so different that my, my like takeaway still 15 years later was just the difference in like, I can see and feel everything. This is, <laughs> this is so different. So that that kind of leads like you having that helmet and, and there's for everyone listening, there's a great, he's got a great visual backdrop of all like the scullies he wore, all the helmets and things like that. You played for a ton of organizations. What is gear collection for you like? Like you you go, I mean, it's every like every fan's dream. Oh, I've got this, I got a new pirate's helmet, or you know, this whatever. When you're you're pop, a lot of the times like you're popping into this organization, you're hanging out for a couple of weeks and then you're you're popping out. How much team gear would you would you take? I imagine you have more like Red Sox gear than because you were with the organization for so long, but just in general, like you go somewhere, what does the hall look like? All right. So, so all these years later at this point, I've, I've tried to pare it down to, to what I can actually display because I played for 13 teams, eight of them in the big leagues. Like that's just too much stuff. So I have, I think I have one Jersey from every team except for the Indians. I didn't get that Jersey somehow. Um, but I, for those of you listening, I can kind of walk you through what I've got behind me. I've got, um, eight different major league helmets and, and a helmet, uh, batting helmets, the what with the one ear flap, and I've got something from the World Baseball Classic and the Olympics. Uh, I've got custom gloves that were made for for specific events with engrave. Uh, in, what's it called? Not engraving. Like the stitching. It's pr- stitching, whatever. Uh, I've got my three AAA championship rings and my World Series ring right behind my head. You can't even see it. Um, and then up top, those are the bottles we popped when we won the World Series. Uh, and then everyone on the team signed them. So I think that's a pretty cool piece. Uh, and then, yeah, one one of the things I did collect from other people uh, was when I was with these different teams, I thought, who's my favorite of this team's all-time Hall of Famers? And I would buy one of their throwback jerseys and just hope they came around. Uh, and then I got, I got signed jerseys from Hank Aaron, Ricky Henderson, Cal Ripken Jr., uh, Derek Jeter, um, some like absolute dudes. So that's pretty cool. Is that, is that normal? Cause like a lot of guys do that, you know, there's the, Hey, you send balls with the clubby or something. Will you sign? Like, what is, what's kind of the the process there? Cause you're, I mean, they're not technically a coworker. A lot of those guys have retired by that point, but what is, you know, is it, 
Is it is that like kosher in the big leagues? Like, hey, you're someone I really admire. You know, I know I'm a big leaguer. You're a big leaguer, but you're a Hall of Famer. Will you sign this for me? Yeah, everyone everyone that I uh, asked was super gracious and generous about doing it, and it's it's a mutual respect thing. Like, I'm not going to go ask Chipper Jones for an autograph that I plan to then go sell, right? And he knows that, or I would hope at least he knows that. It's for me and my personal collection because. You were one of my favorite players growing up, and it's so cool for me to meet you. So as long as you go about it the right way, everyone was super nice about it. So 2013, you guys you guys make a World Series run. And really, most of your time in Boston, you guys are contenders. Um, you know, there's obviously like the chicken and beer thing that, that got that got very overblown and things like that. But you guys are always contending, which means that everyone, there's no time for development. There's no time to give yada young guy 500 ABs because we got to see what he's got. I'm sure there's value in playing for a contending organization and, you know, having a lot of veterans and future hall of famers in the clubhouse. But what is your career? Like if you're drafted by a 71 organization, like how is it different if you come up in 2011 and you guys stink? That is something I try not to think about. Uh, and you Kyle, as the baseball writer can, uh, make your own predictions. Yeah. I, I can I can understand that, but I, I'd imagine too that there was value in being around so many so many good players and like I mean having a World Series ring seems pretty cool. Seems seems like something seems seems pretty cool. So I'm sure there was some give and take, but as you get into you know your your post Red Sox phase and it's you know you're not going to be the catcher of the future there, and you start. You know, you start jumping around. You mentioned you have in your in your athletic article, uh, twenty six demotions, trades, or releases. What is what is like that? What is the typical process like of say a release? Say like you you're playing for an organization, they let you know you are no longer playing for this organization. The we always we see the baseball transaction of so and so released, so and so picked up on waivers, assigned to AAA, AAA wherever. Emotionally, physically, you know, what is the day to day like for you and your wife? Of we have to get from point A to point B, and and our lives have changed. Yeah, the the emotional side, um, especially the first handful of times, it's it's tough. It's you're. I equate it to being fired from your dream job. Ultimately, uh, you were good enough today and you're not good enough tomorrow, or you're part of the team. You're part of the family uh, today, but tomorrow you're on the outside looking in and you never know when it will be the last time because what the percentages, 7% of high schoolers get to play in college. 9% of college players get to get drafted 16% of people that even get drafted, make it to the big leagues and 50% of those don't play for even one year. So the odds against you are 99.95 against when you have got to the big leagues and you get sent down every single time you may never be back and it's a hard pill to swallow. And, uh, the first few times it's, it's an absolute emotional roller coaster. Um, for me, I was sent down 26 times, which means I was called up 26 times, which is, I don't know what, I don't, I don't even know who, if anyone keeps the record or the most of that, but like, that's a, that's a perseverance and a refusal to quit. Um, and eventually it became, 
and understanding that it's a business and it's not personal. Every big league team, every big league general manager and coaching staff is either trying to win right now or trying to figure out a way to win next year or the year after that. Um, and if you fit into the plans, great, you'll be there. And if you don't play better, play better and force your way into the plans. That's how I got up the first time. Um, so yeah, as far as the logistics part of it, uh, 56 moves, they say that, uh, moving is one of the top five most stressful parts of someone's life 56 times. Um, you just do it. You don't have a choice. If, if, uh, for instance, in, in 2019, I, I was, I was playing like crap. I was playing bad. Anyway, the Yankees released me. I didn't see it coming. Um, and then I had a flat tire in the parking lot and I couldn't even leave. I had to wait for AAA to come. Um, but we had played a day game. So I get released around four to four thirty PM by 10 o'clock that night. So within the next five hours, I got a call back from the Yankees that said, one of our big league catchers got hurt. We need you back. I got a call from the pirates that said, Hey, uh, we have a night game. Don't sign with anyone else until we have a chance to talk to you. I got a call from the guy that was replacing me on the Yankees AAA team, like, hey, can I take over your lease? And I got a call from the Cincinnati Reds. Hey, we had two catchers hurt today. We'll put you in the big leagues tomorrow. How fast can you get here? And it's this unbelievable whirlwind of emotions and and logistical nightmares of you got to get the internet turn, turned off. You got to get the water and the power turned into someone else's name. You got to get the furniture picked up. You got to break the lease or sublet it to this new guy. And I got to fly to Cincinnati in 12 hours and play the St. Louis Cardinals tomorrow. And Adam Wainwright. And Adam Wainwright. And if you could just kind of extend into what happened in that game. <laughs> yeah. And it was, so I'll give you just a little bit more background of that. I was also taking a, a Yale online course at the time. So I had homework because <laughs> I hadn't graduated yet. So I fly to Cincinnati get a uniform, pass a physical, look at all the scouting reports to figure out like, who's my pitcher that I'm catching. Don't even worry about the pitcher I'm facing. Um, and I go out and have the game of my life. <laughs> two, two, bom- three hits, two bombs, six RBIs, uh, in, in your Reds debut. Every time that happens, every time you get called up to catch six games with the pirates or come play with the reds or whatever do you have any do you have like a thought in your mind of like hey maybe this is the forever home or if i do this i mean you did everything you could have with the reds if i do this am i gonna to stick around or at some point does it be like maybe like a forever home for me just doesn't exist well you feel like hope springs eternal right i always hoped that i would find a forever home uh i that's why you keep going that's why you go and you do your best and you think, well, if I play well enough, maybe I can find a forever home. I can force my way into the lineup. And unfortunately it didn't happen, but that's what I always hung on to. We're, we're kind of bumping up on time, but I do want to talk about kind of a, a forever baseball home in that at least a chance to let you be a mainstay in your experiences with team Israel, where 2017, you guys are these, you know, these underdogs and you beat South Korea and Taiwan. And then you also play with them in the Olympics, you play with them in, in Europe. What has, 
what is incorporating the international aspect of, of baseball like been, been like for you? Because I think it doesn't get the same attention a lot of the times as the basketball or obviously soccer and, and things like that. But a, I think a lot of American players have been able to you know, play in the WBC and, 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 you know, connect, connect with heritage of whatever parent or whatever. And it's, it seems like I've never heard a bad word about it. And what does that mean like for you? For, for me, it well number one, it's been life-changing because I wasn't connected to my religion, my, my Jewish identity at all before playing for team Israel. And it really helped me find my community. So, so finding my people, finding myself has been a huge life-changing experience. But international baseball is pure. Nobody is playing for a contract. Nobody is hanging on uh, to and playing just because they have a contract that they maybe don't deserve anymore. Nobody's worried about endorsements. It's not a 162-game season that you have to hold back a little bit for, or if you, if you win or lose, it doesn't really matter. It's pure. You have to win today with who we've got. So... For instance, last uh, two weeks ago, I was in the European Championships. Um, I've been retired for a year. We have Shlomo Lippitz, who's 45 years old and been playing for Israel baseball for 70 years. We have some college players. We have some indie ball players. We have some former affiliated ball players. It doesn't matter where you came from. You're our, you're our people. Like you, 18-year-old Israelis, we're all the same. We're all teammates. We're all on the same page. And we're all pulling the, the same rope in the same direction. And it makes baseball so fun. It makes your this is this is this is our people. This is who we got, and it's it's just pure. So thirteen organizations, eight big league teams, multiple stints stints overseas. Uh, you know, in, in winter ball. Um, what is you know you've retired. You've written the article. You are still playing though. You're still, you know, you're doing, what is, what is baseball like? You know, what, what do you see your future in baseball as? Like, what do you, what do you, it doesn't seem like you're, it doesn't seem like you're going to go start teaching philosophy at Yale. Like, it seems like you're pretty in on baseball. What is, what is the, you know, what do you see for yourself? Um, I don't know. I, I love the game. I think um, I have a lot to offer to the next generation of players in, in one way or another. Um I've had a lot of really great experiences and the, and the game has given me so much. So I I've been speaking with some front offices about some opportunities in the front office in, in coaching. We'll see what comes next, but I don't see a world where I'm not involved in baseball. I, after this conversation, I don't really see that either. Uh, if you could go back and give yourself your 21 year old self a pep talk day after you got drafted, what does that pep talk look like? Oh my goodness. People ask me this question all the time and, you know, normally I would, I would give the pause for dramatic effect of, of like, Oh, what's the best advice uh, for me? I got my best opportunity to stick in the big leagues. You talked about, you know, we were winning all the time in 2012. We were not winning with the Red Sox and I had a great year in AAA. I started in the all-star game. I was hitting 330, and I got called up and I rode the pine for about two weeks. And then with zero conversation, they started playing me five days a week. And I felt out of rhythm. I felt out of whack. The team was in last place. The coaching staff wasn't on the same page. Um, There's a lot of really easily built-in excuses that I allowed myself to lean on. Um, but here's the thing. The back of your baseball card doesn't care about context. 
if you're put in a position to succeed or if you're put in a position to fail, you need to succeed anyway. Just like any other job, right? If, if a Boston Red Sox fan goes to a game, they don't care that you played in Seattle the night before, had to fly overnight, landed in Monday morning rush hour traffic, didn't get to your apartment until 11 a.m. They want to see you beat the Yankees. And if you're in a, another job, say it's sales, they don't care that the legal department made you go through 17 uh, courses to make sure that you were in compliance. They care that you hit your numbers. It's, it's, it's every aspect of life. There's a time to focus on the process and there's a time to get results. So if it's your time, you got to win. I like that. I got a quick rapid fire for you and then I'll let you get out of here. Favorite, my favorite minor league ballpark. Columbus. Favorite big league ballpark. Anyway, easy. Best New Haven food spot. Alpha Delta Pizza. Get the Wenzel. Best pitcher you ever faced. Justin Masterson. Oh, oh for a million off that oh, guy. Oh, the bowling balls. Just bowling ball sinkers. Oh my God. You might as well don't even put me in the lineup that day. <laughs> Best pitcher you ever caught. Uh, I, I don't think that's a fair question. So I'll say John Lester. Cause I think he's the first hall of famer of my former teammates. I, th- I think he will be, uh, do you have a last one? Do you have a nightmare bus ride or travel story from the minor leagues? Oh boy. Nightmare. Um, try to enjoy it most of the time. How about, how about a nightmare, uh, bad travel call up story? Oh yeah. We're, we're, I'm playing for the Nashville sounds of the triple a Oakland A's at the time. We're in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I turned my phone off overnight, which is a big no-no when you're in AAA. My hotel phone rings at 7 in the morning. I answer it. How, how fast can you get to the, the airport in Denver? I'm like, as soon as you need me to. We have a day game in Oakland. Josh Fegley's wife went into labor. You're active. <laughs> so I drive, I drive to the Denver airport. I have a noon flight. I land in the fourth inning of the of the game get to the field um put on my uniform forget to sign my contract go out to the field they call you got to come back in sign a contract go back in it's the seventh inning by the time i get my spikes on after the game we fly to seattle god i mean at least they didn't need you to like pinch it in the ninth though that would have been so was when the phone rang to tell me i needed to go back in and sign my contract Bruce Maxwell had just got hit in the face with a foul tip and was rolling on the ground like he was going to come out. And I thought I was, I thought I was in the game. Didn't even have spikes on yet, but he, he, he was all right. And he, he ended up staying in. That is uh that is life of a journeyman. Ryan, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the farm. Yeah, Kyle. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. That was fun. Absolutely, man. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to Ryan LeVarnway for stopping by the show, walking us through his career. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Episodes from Phenom to the Farm drop every other two weeks. And make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and be a podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. 